Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. So we're going to pick it up where we left it off a few weeks ago, just before we started talking about how we can approach with care and compassion to someone who is very, very angry. This case is really about Jen, and uh, we wanted to explore further the concept of chronic widespread pain. So this is where the patient will hurt everywhere, but also in conjunction with the multiple unexplained symptoms. And this was this great paper that I'd suggested uh, you have a look at just to kind of create a um, situation where we're thinking of possibility or being curious, especially when we're trying to help the patient move forward in their life. So this was an open access paper by Dr. Kevin Fleming and Mark Volchek. And the title of the paper is Central Sensitization in the Initial Evaluation of a Patient with Fibromyalgia, a Review. And this is in the Clinical Psychology in Medicine. So this is a group from uh, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, in the U.S., So just to remind us about Jen. So Jen is a 32-year-old female. She's had a 10-year history of chronic diffuse myalgias and arthralgias. She also described some foggy thinking and some fatigue. She presented to the emergency room with a two-month history of continuous chest pressure and a sense of not being able to take that deep breath. So she's been worked up. She's had some investigations to try and figure out if this is something that is reversible or treatable. In particular, the conversation I often have with patients is what we want to do is make sure this is this is nothing uh, dangerous or bad that we need to address. It doesn't make the symptom any less difficult or challenging to experience. It's just that is there something we can do to reverse this process? If not, then we need to help the patient be able to manage it because it is a very scary place to be, especially if you're presenting with something with chest pressure. And this is where uh, brain memory comes in because all of us have had experiences in our life where someone may have had a significant illness in our life or ourselves. So when we start to experience these, these symptoms, it's very easy to go down that rabbit hole. And I find one of the tools that we have easy access to uh, in the year 2020 is Google. And many patients will actually Google these symptoms, and it is pretty scary. You'll even find with uh, telephone triage that you'll see with 811 in particular in our community that the uh, protocols are very, very you know safety-driven. So they almost always will tell the patient that they need to be seen within 24 hours. Or sometimes they'll actually, the urgency is so great that they'll say, look, you need to call an ambulance, go into the hospital. So this can create a lot of confusion. It can also escalate what the person is experiencing, but it's also very important because if the patient is experiencing something dangerous or bad, it needs to be addressed. In particular with Jen, these investigations have not shown us anything dangerous or bad. And this includes a cardiac workup, respiratory, looking at inflammatory serology. These have all not shown us anything uh, dangerous or bad at this time. So prior to her investigations around the chest pressure, she also had numerous investigations around her diffuse myalgias and arthralgias. And these serology and the testing has really not given us an answer to help us explain all of these multiple symptoms. So she's come to the emergency requesting a second opinion, which can be both very challenging for the patient, but also challenging for the healthcare provider, because emergency departments often are not great for fast-tracking second opinions, especially if you're in a rural community, uh, you have very little access to specialty services. 
Obviously, we encourage these second opinions to be relegated through the uh, family physician's office, but many of our patients nowadays don't have a family physician. So let's just review chronic widespread pain. So what we talked about in our previous podcast about Jen is that the mechanism for widespread pain can be extensive, but central sensitization can be one of those really important uh, mechanisms for this. So this is often referred to as a sensory amplification disorder. So what is central sensitization? So just to review what we've discussed in the past, it is the heightened sensitivity at that nociceptive neuron through the process of change or plasticity. Sometimes we refer that as neuroplasticity. So what this starts to do is it starts to contribute to the alteration of uh, pain perception from a non-painful stimulus. So typically when we think of allodynia, that is a generally an altered pain perception. It is sort of an amplification that's happening at the peripheral nociceptor. There's also the other aspect of the neuroplasticity when we talk about that hypersensitivity is hyperalgesia. And this is where you have a greater pain experience than you would expect from a a stimulus that is painful. But so a great example would be somebody who, you know, maybe stubbed their toe So that's going to be painful because our brain needs us to know that we've got an injury there to pay attention. But if someone has a central sensitization syndrome, stubbing that toe, you're not starting at zero. You're starting at probably a five intensity. Uh, Because remember, patients with persistent pain uh, are never pain-free, right? They always have some baseline pain. And this is where the experience of that stubbing of the toe can be super intense, So it's not about willpower, it's not about being tough, it's really about how that pain system is responding. And when it's been heightened through the process of plasticity, that experience can be pretty intense. So we need to recognize this. We'll see this where I see this also commonly would be someone who comes into the emergency room who's living with a persistent pain syndrome and they're involved in a motor vehicle collision that is very minor. So they could be at a stop sign and someone taps them in the back and they get pushed forward. That pain from that injury can be quite intense. So it can be pain at a proportion than what you would expect. It doesn't make it any less real. It is very real for this patient. We just need to make sure that there's nothing dangerous or bad that's happening in that tissue. And also, so getting some some information around the amount of damage to the vehicle, also the speed or the mechanism of that injury. But typically these injuries that are not high impact, they're low velocity, you don't expect them to cause significant injury. Now, this is when we're talking about a 32-year-old. It's very different than when we're talking about an 85-year-old because it doesn't take much for an 85-year-old with very osteoporotic bones to actually have a fracture. It doesn't take much for sure. So the interesting thing about central sensitization, besides contributing to persistent pain or diffuse body pain, it can also contribute to organ or visceral hypersensitivity. So we think of that allodynia hyperalgesia on the tissue, but you can actually get that in the organ or visceral tissue as well. So this can affect multiple organ systems and can produce intolerable discomfort for the patient. And this can also lead to multiple unexplained symptoms. So we can also see it in the environmental intolerances as well. So this can also lead to multiple drug and food sensitivities. These are often patients that don't have abnormalities in their skin testing or their serology. So central sensitization 
can impact many different experiences for the patient. So it can contribute to that diffuse body pain, but also those multiple unexplained symptoms that you can see in patients. And uh, Dr. Fleming in his article really covers this well. So where I've seen this is often patients who have very complex chronic pain, but may have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but can also have ongoing abdominal pain. Now we know that there is a syndrome associated with Ehlers-Danlos, which is called POT syndrome. So this is really around a tacky syndrome that we sometimes see. Uh, so that's a little bit separate than the than the multiple unexplained symptoms. But they can have atypical facial pain. They can have underlying anxiety. So anxiety can be linked to that pain experience because the part of the brain that is responsible for that is that alarm system. So anxiety is there to tell us to pay attention. Pain is there to tell us to pay attention. So if both of those are amplified, they can influence each other. So you can also see uh, sick building syndrome, so around that environmental piece. So it's really quite interesting when you dig into this. The importance of recognizing this is that we need to make sure that we're acknowledging that what that patient is experiencing is very real to them. We cannot say to that patient that they're making this up. This is not true. This is something that's very, very real. And so acknowledging what they're experiencing as being real, bringing in the investigations that you've done to make sure that there's nothing dangerous or bad or something other that's contributing to it is very important. The reason why we need to identify this, and I, I think about uh, the complexity of trying to, you know, if we just think about pain generally, if I think about no other layers to the person that's sitting in front of me, when we think about how we manage pain, how we talk to patients about pain, it's really not that complicated, right? So we need to be able to frame pain in a healthy context to let patients know this is how our pain system works. But we also need to help to find tools for the patient to manage the pain. What brings in the complexity is the layers of that person, right? So they have had a different lived experience. They've had different habits and behaviors that they've used to manage the pain that they've experienced in their life. But they also can have this other complexity around how you're managing pain, including central sensitization and these multiple unexplained symptoms. So these are super, super complex cases. But if we focus in on one etiology as contributing to this complexity, we probably can help the patient understand it better. So this is why when we're trying to think about how we help patients move forward, focusing in on central sensitization can help us, even if we want to bring in these drug and food intolerances. So you'll often see in the pain clinic, patients who have tremendous fear around certain types of foods. So on top of their chronic abdominal pain, there can be limited exposure to certain types of food because they see some kinds of triggers as well. So they've adopted these special diets in an attempt to reduce their symptoms. But what happens is they can develop significant uh, malnutrition and weight loss as a result. So how we introduce food again back into their diet, it's the same way as how we're introducing activity back into a person's daily routine. So you want to do the same thing with pacing with food. Now, whether the patient is ready for that, remember, they need to be ready to make those changes because they've worked really, really hard to get where they are. It's very, very difficult. So finding something that they'd be willing to uh, begin to work on. So maybe it's not going to be around the environmental stuff, but maybe it might be around the pacing of activity. Anything that'll allow us to dial down that pain system so they're not getting 
getting these intense flare-ups, whether the flare-ups are coming from the musculoskeletal system, whether they're coming from the abdominal system. That's what's really important. So it's understanding that central sensitization, understanding the amplification of the experiences that patients can have, which can range from, as we talked about, the arthrologists and myalgias of fibromyalgia, but they can have headaches, abdominal complaints, pelvic concerns. So all kinds of different types of terminology that we've used to discuss the clustering of these symptoms, but it's really considered, as we, we stressed here earlier, an underlying syndrome of central sensitization. The other piece of this, often these patients have received tons of investigation. So knowing that central sensitization is playing a role, what's next step is what we can do about it. And that can be really challenging. But simply acknowledging that central sensitization is a force that is contributing to this confusion is a critical first step. And it even allows us to recognize that we can have a focus that we can help the patient address. And I know that in the pain self-management clinic, we actually have a sheet of possible symptoms that are associated with central sensitization. And we actually get the patient because everybody's experience is going to be different, right? This is one of these layers. You know, we can think of central sensitization as being one thing, but then you've got all these different layers of patients in terms of how they experience their pain and suffering. So we have a checklist that we go through that says, you know, abdominal pain, or it says, you know, diffuse um, discomfort on the skin. Um, I wish I had the list in front of me, but it's probably a number of about 50 different uh, symptoms that can be associated with central sensitization. So yeah, so and I think it's so important, because when I think about these patients who are living with, you know, abdominal pain, not yet diagnosed, right? These are patients that have undergone significant surgical procedures, or they've not had surgical procedure, maybe have had a number of scopes, but nothing has really helped them identify the cause of that. And these are patients that have been worked up for gluten sensitivity, there can be inflammatory bowel disease, so these biopsies that have been done. So rather than leaving the patient, well, you know what, you're just going to have to learn to live with it. Just like we say sometimes to patients who are living with persistent pain, just go live with it. Patients don't have the skills or strategies to do that. It's like telling a patient, who you've just diagnosed with insulin-dependent diabetes that they need to just, and you're handing them the syringes and the insulin and telling them, yep, just go figure it out. You'll figure it out. It's incredibly terrifying and overwhelming. And our patients are really trying to figure out and have actually developed some strategies, but often those are strategies that just get them through the moment. They don't help them in the bigger picture. So it's maybe something that's keeping them more inactive, that they know that they can't really do things that the way they did before, but they're almost too afraid to try and, and start to walk again because of these intense flare-ups. So having a strategy around walking, really important. So when I think about the most common strategy I do, and I always tell patients the, the walking piece can be super important, or it can be any activity that they want to do, whether it's getting in the water, whether it's getting on a pedal bike, whether it's just sitting at a, a table and just doing a handheld mobility that we'll see sometimes with these bikes in um, physiotherapy. I can't remember what they're called, but they're kind of cool. The key is, is that what, what the activity does is it changes patients from a pain focus to a function focus. But here's how you would actually instruct the patient to begin that activity. I'm going to use walking. We've talked about this in previous podcasts, but walking is a really important skill set 
that can help to reboot or retrain that pain system. So it actually helps to dampen down the plasticity. So we know that there's been that hypersensitivity due to neuroplasticity. What we want to do is dial it back down again. And what we're trying to do is to dial down the pain intensity. And you can actually do that with activity because our nervous system is incredibly shapeable. We can actually, you know, dial it up or we can dial it back. It does take some consistency. It does take some time, but it can happen. So let's just come to activity because I do think it's really important. So if I have somebody with a persistent pain syndrome or has multiple unexplained symptoms associated with central sensitization, if I was going to try and get them walking, for example, I would get them to first start by telling me or or having access to a surface that is very flat, that is very consistent, no big hills, no walking through the woods yet, Um, even though that would be a great thing because there's lots of distraction. The problem is, is that there's some uneven surfaces that actually increase the the risk of unpredictability and uncertainty because some patients are very concerned about falling. So I get them to start with a flat surface. And uh, what I want to do is I want them to when they before they begin that walk is to check in with their body and to say, okay, what is the pain intensity I'm experiencing right now? And it's kind of a, a really hard thing for sometimes for patients because they do have these intense flare-ups. But what you're trying to do is establish what their baseline is. So the average baseline that I often see is five on ten. So that would be the patient zero, believe it or not. That's the intensity that they live with every day. So we're going to get them to start walking on that flat surface at a very comfortable pace. And what you want them to do is you want them to pay attention. When does that pain start going from a five to a six and a seven? And so that may be 10 minutes, that may be five minutes, that may actually be one minute. It depends on the patient, right? So what you want to do is you want to say, okay, so that's when I start to see the intensity go up. So what I'm going to do is cut that time in half. And the reason you do that, it's not that you're going to keep them there because, of course, it would be pretty discouraging to stay at five minutes. So if you're 10 minutes is when you start to see the increased intensity, five minutes doesn't seem like much at all. And in fact, you're looking at two and a half minutes up and two and a half minutes back. They don't have to use time. They can actually use uh, something that they can look at. So they may have a, a point. So it might be a tree or it might be, you know, like a driveway. What you're doing then is that you're trying to establish an amount of activity that they can do on a good pain day or a bad pain day. And the reason why that is, is that you cannot use pain to decide whether you move or not, because what's going to happen is you're not going to move. And what you want to do, though, is you want to bring predictability and safety into that movement. And so what happens then is that that alarm system or that survival brain is saying, okay, Here's an amount of time that we can do that feels safe. It's safe in a predictable way. And here is Jen is going to actually do that amount of time and she's not going to do more. And that's really important because the tendency is, and most patients will tell you this, is that there are some days they feel great. They feel like they could go forever. And what they do is they go forever and then they're flat, they're back for three or four days. So the purpose of the walking is to, to not only dial back 
that pain intensity. But the purpose of the activity is actually to minimize these intense flare-ups, to lay them flat on their back. Because it is these flare-ups, whether flare-ups in pain or abdominal pain, flare-ups in muscle pain, neck pain, wherever their pain focus is, is that uh, pain intensity, the more you flare up, the more unpredictable, the more out of control pain becomes. So we want to bring predictability into the situation. We actually want to bring movement into the situation because our brains need two things. The brain needs stillness or calm. It also needs movement, just even from an evolutionary perspective. So if you think about it, and I love the concept of the tribe mentality, because the part of the brain that's driving this is the the oldest part of our brain the, from an evolutionary part of our development as a human species, that limbic system has been essential for survival. When patients are in persistent pain or feeling chronic anxiety, they are in a survival mode 24-7. So when patients are trying to cut back their activity because they're looking for calm or they're just feeling this chaos, if you think about what happens from an evolutionary perspective, so the more disconnected we become, the less mobile we become, the more agitated that survival brain becomes, primarily because, guess what? From an evolutionary perspective, when we get disconnected from the pack or we're stopping moving, we're more vulnerable to predators. So that's why that alarm starts to get more intense, whether the alarm is in a pain experience or whether we're feeling more anxious, right? So this is, this is really important. So we want patients moving without these flare-ups. We want to get them to a point where they're sleeping better without feeling hungover in the morning. And this is where these medications sometimes can hold them back as well. But more importantly, we want to get them back to living their life with purpose and connection to the people and things that matter in their life. So we talked about some of the things that we could start to do. So how should we frame this? So if we think of just about these multiple unexplained symptoms, we think of central sensitization, it just gets overwhelming. So we want to approach it like we would do any other condition, especially when someone is trying to empower themselves to manage their complex care, right? So the important thing is that we want to, to legitimize this for the patient, to acknowledge that what they're feeling is very real, that we now have an ICD-11 classification through the World Health Organization that recognizes chronic pain and central sensitization as a unique condition that requires a very unique approach, right? So how you can frame this out is that, uh, and what I love to ask patients sometimes is when you experience your pain, tell me what what information you've been given about what is driving this pain. So patients will often talk about degenerative arthritis. They'll talk about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. They'll talk about, you know, their Crohn's disease. I list all of those because that's really important for that patient in terms of what their journey has been. All of these different conditions can contribute to pain, there's no question. But you actually list chronic pain as a distinct condition from those, right? So it may be that the Crohn's disease, uh, one of the experiences of a Crohn's disease flare-up could have triggered the chronic pain, but in itself 
Crohn's disease has a very distinct approach, right? So it's always important to make sure that the Crohn's disease is stable. So this is why we use other types of markers. But that patient can have a coexisting illness with their Crohn's called chronic pain, which is secondary to central sensitization. This is why sometimes even when a decision is made to go do surgery, even though there's no inflammatory part of bowel going on, often physicians will go in to, to release adhesions or maybe take out a part of the bowel that they feel may be contributing, but it doesn't change the pain for the patient. And that's a really difficult decision to do, right? So legitimizing pain, chronic pain as a disease in its own right is incredibly important, not only from a research perspective, but also to ensure the patient and help to support the patient and help them recognize, just like they can have diabetes, they can also have chronic pain. This also allows us as healthcare providers to focus on strategies that can be more successful for that patient. It can be overwhelming, don't get me wrong. It's very difficult. It's just talking about these different layers, and we know that it can lead to burnout. In fact, when I think about my own journey through healthcare, I remember early in my training how overwhelming it was to try and provide care to someone living with chronic pain. I was so used to a situation where, you know, patient came in with a blood pressure issue, we would help the patient look at all the different approaches they could use to manage that blood pressure. But when they came in with persistent pain, when we think about the strategies that we were taught, and this would have been in the early, late 70s and early 80s, we weren't really taught. We were just said, yep, pain, we want to look at it mild, moderate, severe, here's what you're going to do, rather than looking at the different layers and looking at the complexity, especially around chronic pain. So this is super, super hard work, not only for the patient, but for healthcare providers as well. So, but it's really worth it when you do get there and the patient is ready. And and that's the other key that's so important is that when the patient is ready to understand that central sensitization is a factor that's contributing to this complexity, then it's wonderful because all of a sudden they start to pull in all that different information and they start to look at tools. But if they're not ready, so they're pre-contemplative, then we have to be very, very patient Remember, knowledge is possibility. It only has power, not only if we use it, but if we're ready to use it. All right. So I always come back to that approach, those six steps that we talked about that we can use to kind of develop an approach to this. And the most important is to listen to the story. So these complex patients who have chronic pain and multiple unexplained symptoms can be really overwhelming, but it's just coming back to the basics because what what's really important about listening to their pain story is you want to make sure, is this acute pain? That means new pathology or progression of a pre-existing disease, or is this something related to a chronic pain flare-up that's happening from central sensitization? So when I'm looking at listening, it's really making the distinction between acute pain and chronic pain related to central sensitization. So I always need to acknowledge, though, that their suffering is unique to them. So pain or suffering scales, as I like to think about them, not just pain scales, but suffering scales, helps us to really look at all the different factors that contribute to the experience of pain for that patient. So I want to listen to their story. I want to acknowledge that that suffering is got to be difficult for them. I can't imagine what they're experiencing because nobody can really know what that patient is feeling. We just can only listen and acknowledge the next thing I want to do is I want to examine them carefully. 
for any new pathology or progression of a pre-existing disease. So the reason we do that, like we said, is, is this acute or is this something related to central sensitization? And the exam of somebody with central sensitization, especially in the abdomen, can be really difficult because they have that allodynia and that hyperalgesia. So the examination of the belly can be very difficult. So what I always do is prepare the patient. We're just going to touch your belly. I'm not going to try and hurt you. So it's really helping the patient dial down a bit. It's important that most patients who live with persistent pain, when we start to touch or examine their body, we first need to get permission for that. But the patient will almost always invariably hold their breath. So we want to help the patient breathe, talk them through it, let them know that you're there to help them. You're not going to be there to hurt them. So once I've done that and I've seen that there is no new pathology or progression of a pre-existing disease, I don't always do more investigation because as we know, investigations can also be very harmful to the patient. Not only do they contribute to that psychosocial decline because tests tend to come back with the same information, they don't really change anything for the patient, um, but we're also exposing the patient to radiation, right? So if you're doing a lot of CT scans, that patient is at risk for developing a secondary condition like a malignancy and a great paper that looked at the risk of cancer. So in the U.S., uh, because there is a huge amount of CT scanning that is done, CT scanning was associated with 2% of malignancies. So it is a it is a risk. And I always tell the, talk to the patient about that risk. And our body hangs on to that radiation, right? It doesn't get rid of the radiation. So the next step is to always in our, now if we're thinking this is acute pain, you want to look at it very specifically. So the communication is really important. So I always talk about the talking points. Then I want to look at an interventional strategy. So if this is acute pain from a fracture, the important intervention that you want to do is stabilize that fracture either with splinting or sometimes we have to put them in a bit of traction. The next thing you want to look at, so, so how I communicate with that patient with acute pain, what interventions I can do, what alternative therapies I can do. So I'm already talking them through the breathing. So breathing is a really important strategy to calm that alarm system right? So it changes the chemistry when we, we use our breathing. The next step, so the interventional, the alternative therapies, the pharmacotherapy would be something that I'd look at next. So it depends on the injury. It depends on the patient. Looking at uh, your acetaminophen, your NSAIDs uh, for acute pain. Uh, there is a trial looking at uh, the use of acetaminophen in acute back pain. Uh, the PACE trial, which has actually brought in all kinds of different systematic reviews. The evidence was not overwhelming, but we still use it in clinical setting because guess what? Sometimes it works. And I always tell patients there's a reason why Tylenol gets added into an opiate analgesic sometimes. When we think of Tylenol number three, Percocet, is that Tylenol is an analgesic. So it is by far the safest even though it does have risk, obviously. But the next group we have are the NSAIDs. And of course, we know the NSAIDs can have some complications as well, including some gut grief, some uh, problem with blood pressures, in, in particular if the patient is on any ACE inhibitors. Other types of uh, analgesic that we can use, uh, if this is acute pain, we can look at an opiate analgesic, how we deliver it, how we risk stratify the patient becomes the next step that's really important. Once I've sort of addressed the acute pain through the intervention, alternative therapies, then pharmacotherapy, I want to risk stratify that patient. And if I make a decision with the patient to use an opiate analgesic, I need to risk stratify, meaning that I need to understand, just like if I was prescribing Coumadin, 
If I was going to use Coumadin in somebody who came in with atrial fibrillation, I would want to risk stratify that patient before I gave them that medication. So the risk for Coumadin is that somebody will have a complication like a bleed. So we know that the older the patient is, the higher the risk is bleeding. We also know that certain types of medications can alter the warfarin. Or if that patient is already on some Plavix, then adding in something like warfarin would put that patient at risk. When we look at opiate analgesics in particular, the biggest risk uh, are three primarily. It's, it's opiate-induced toxicity. So the opiate-induced pain comes more from that renal insufficiency. So I want to stay away from those opiates in the elderly patient with renal insufficiency that have a lot of active metabolites. So I want to stay away from codeine and morphine, tend to use things like uh, hydromorphone or fentanyl in patients with uh, renal insufficiency. In young people, I want to really minimize the euphoria in the use of medication. So the most euphoric opiates that are out there tend to be things like Percocet, uh, hydromorphone. So they tend to be the ones that are abused the most. So I would stay more with morphine in the younger age group. Then I would help the patient manage risk. So if I'm going to prescribe an opiate analgesic from the emergency room, I'm probably only looking at three or four days because if you look at the normal progression of acute pain, that pain intensity reaches a peak and then that pain goes away. So having that conversation with the patient, you know, once I've cast at them, once we've done what we need to do to help minimize that pain, is to share with them that this is the normal progression of healing. Now, if that pain is starting to escalate, if I've got somebody in a cast, that's really important. So pain is really important if it's starting to escalate rather than trying to go down. So an escalation in acute pain is always more concerning. If this pain, however, is chronic, and the other thing I just want to mention with the acute pain, my target therapy is around an 80% reduction. I want to minimize sedation but improve function in that acute pain. With chronic pain, if I'm going to use pharmacotherapy, if I get a 30 to 40% reduction, that's considered successful. I want to avoid sedation and I want to improve function. So really your pharmacology in acute and pain management isn't really about pain management. It's really about function management. The only group that I really focus on uh, pain management, meaning that I may cause sedation or may compromise function, would be in the patient who is at the end of life. So this is where you still need to have a conversation with the patient because most patients who are living with life-limiting illness don't want to be immobilized. They want to stay active. But there is a certain point in some of these illnesses that more activity actually contributes to more suffering. So I just look at bony mets uh, in somebody who has reached the end of their disease. They're not responding to radiation. Uh, the pharmacotherapy uh, seems to help when they're resting, but not helping when they're getting active. So these are just some of the things that you go through. So maximizing the non-opioid non-cannabinoid therapies in the chronic pain patient. And if I'm going to use the opioids or cannabinoids, I want to risk stratify for harm if opioids or cannabinoids are used to manage pain. And this includes the patient at end of life, not because I'm always overly concerned about the patient's misuse. I'm actually more concerned about the environment that they're in, whether or not there could be young people. So we want to help that loved one manage risk. And I've had situations where patients who are living with cancer refuse to use opiate analgesics because one of their kids had addiction or someone in their family had addiction. So we need to help them understand um, or support them in trying to manage that risk and keep the medication away from other family members who they are really concerned about. So it's really important that we get that conversation out. 
And then I'm going to manage the risk by mapping out an approach to opiates and cannabinoids. And if you remember from our previous podcast what mapping is, mapping is to monitor uh, the high-risk pharmacology for aberrancy. So I do that through urine drug screening. I look at prescription monitoring, and I'm also looking at pill counts or solution count. If I do see aberrancy, I want to adjust how I'm dispensing that medication using principles of harm reduction, both to keep the patient as well as the community safe. So really important. So some of the challenges that we might have experienced uh, and how we might begin some conversations, it really is challenging sometimes and it really depends. So patients who've undergone multiple medical evaluations have often developed a very highly medicalized personal story, and it's dominated by reporting of procedures and test results. Some have even settled on a diagnosis and want the clinician to actually provide a desired test or treat it with a specific intervention. So using those open-ended questions in this setting may be resisted by these patients, and they just want to get to the test, right? They want to get to the uh, the, the treatment uh, as opposed to talking about this. So this is where uh, I find a really good way to dig into their story is to ask the question, when did pain become persistent in their life, rather than how long have you had your pain, right? And, and approach this with curiosity. So it allows the patient to give you a little bit of this. And this is if you have some time. So in a primary care office, that can be important. But I could have a very quiet emergency room that day. So I might have that conversation with a patient who's presented probably in the last, you know, last month, they've been there two or three times with these intense pain flare-ups, is to actually spend some time asking them when pain became persistent in their life. And this really helps us help them understand that there is a process or a pattern that uh, might have happened in their life that has contributed to that central sensitization, especially if they have those multiple unexplained symptoms. So it's uh, it can be very interesting uh, to ask that question. All right. So the other thing that I, I want to just focus on, and I'm going to get into this in another podcast, but it's super important. And this actually came to me in a conference that I was attending with other colleagues who have an interest in pain and substance use disorder, in particular around chronic pain and opiate use. And that was the whole concept of trauma-informed care. And what I realized when this uh, individual was giving this great talk on trauma-informed care is the similarities that you see in patients who are living with chronic pain and all those characteristics that you see with individuals have, who have experienced trauma in their life. And I'm not saying that people who live with chronic pain, all persons who live with chronic pain, have experienced trauma in their life, although trauma can come in different forms. It's that we look at the, the approach to patients who have experienced significant trauma in their life as having a survival brain and a thinking brain. And I will tell you with 100% certainty that my experience has been that patients who are not understanding the mechanism for their chronic pain in terms of central sensitization, and especially if they have the complexity around multiple unexplained symptoms, they are in survival mode 24-7. Why that's important to recognize as a healthcare provider is that if you have a patient who is just trying to get through that moment, is really in survival mode, many times they're not hearing what we're saying. It's like giving somebody a diagnosis of cancer. All they can hear is the cancer word. They can't hear anything else. 
And so all of the other information kind of just washes over them. So our approach needs to be in somebody with chronic pain who has central sensitization and multiple unexplained symptoms is that we do, and I strongly believe this, need to approach them from a survival brain. So the information that we're providing has to be very limited. It has to be something that we can reinforce with reading, but it's important to also acknowledge that many of um, patients are not able to read. So the information we're giving them may have to be in different forms. When I think of trauma-informed care, I think of safety, not only a safe environment, but safe prescribing and safe talk, right? Or safe space, safe movement, safe prescribing, and safe conversation, right? Yeah, so if you're telling the patient that, yeah, it could be this terrible diagnosis and that's what you leave them with, all they're hearing, they're not hearing it could be, they're hearing I have. So the communication piece is so important. So when you think of safety, think of safe space, safe movement, and safe prescribing. All right, that's a lot of information for today. So what we're going to do is leave it there. We'll pick it up again next week. Uh, there's so much that I want to talk about with ex- with respect to um, trauma-informed care as well, but I think I'm going to do it separately. So what we're going to do is we're going to leave it there. We'll pick it up next week and keep doing what you do. Remember, this work is really, really hard. We don't do it because it's easy, but it's so satisfying when we do are able to reach patients and help to empower them to manage their very complex disease. So I always think of John F. Kennedy. We do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.